Hi everyone, Cold Open here. Just to let you know that this week we had some technical difficulties with Katie's microphone, but bear with us. It's still a great episode and we're excited to have you here. On with the show. Chapter five, back on this side of the door. Because the game of hide and seek was still going on, it took Edmund and Lucy some time to find the others. But when at last they were all together, which happened in the long room where the suit of armor was, Lucy burst out, Peter, Susan, it's all true. Edmund has seen it too. There is a country you can get to through the wardrobe. Edmund and I both got in. We met one another in there, in the wood. Go on, Edmund, tell them all about it. What's all this about, Ed? said Peter. And now we come one of the nastiest things in this story. I'm Bethy, and this is Katie. Welcome to Fernarnia and for Aslan. Together, we're exploring the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. We have a few announcements for you before we get going this week. First up, don't forget that we have a Facebook page for Narnia and for Aslan, and also that we are available by email at fornarniapodcast at gmail.com. And we love to hear our listeners' thoughts or questions, and sometimes we've come up with more discussion or more minisodes based on these. We'd love to hear from you. Also, we have a Patreon page. So go to the description in this episode and find our link there to listen to the minisodes there and to see all of the other content that we have available. Lastly, the music that you'll hear in this podcast is by Salt of the Sound. They're the best. (laughs) So Bethy, can you give us a recap on chapter five? Yes. In chapter five, when Lucy and Edmund return through the wardrobe, Edmund denies everything and Lucy is more miserable than ever. In desperation, Peter and Susan go to the professor for help, and not only does the professor take them seriously, he says that Lucy should be taken seriously as well. I like that link, how you put that. Yeah, I mean, it's really special the way that he reacts to them coming and listens to them. It makes a point that like he doesn't interrupt them a single time, and he tells them he's completely at their disposal when they ask for an appointment, and they have a real conversation. Diggory is so cool. So Katie, what stood out to you in this chapter? I really like this chapter. It's kind of an in-between chapter in some ways, but the whole situation with Edmund deciding to let Lucy down and then, I don't know why I would like that. It is the nastiest thing in the story, but it's so interesting. Yeah. (laughs) And also the conversation with the professor is just fun. Mm -hmm. It's such a different tone. It is. It feels really different and serious in a new way. And I Mm -hmm. wonder, why do you think Edmund ultimately decided to let Lucy down like that? Well, just to read that section, it says, Up to that moment, Edmund had been feeling sick and sulky and annoyed with Lucy for being right, but he hadn't made up his mind what to do. And when Peter suddenly asked him the question, he decided all at once to do the meanest and most spiteful thing he could think of. Sometimes when you feel put upon or you're pitying yourself or feeling like the world is against you, you just want to lash out at it. And you want them to maybe feel as bad as you feel. Yeah. And then, of course, it doesn't turn out well for him and, and he ends up feeling like it, like his wonderful plan wasn't working. <laughs> Bummer. That's how it always goes, too. Always. It just cracks me up how surprised he is by that. <laughs> I know. It's really cute and sad. Yeah. Edmund was beginning to feel that his plan wasn't working as well as he had expected. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's a really relatable moment. And yeah. also the moment where he's like, I thought... 
I thought, and then he didn't know what to say. And Peter's like, you didn't think at all. (laughs) Yeah, of course, it's true. Yep, that's me. (laughs) Yeah. What is it? Like, you're trying to meet some need you feel of like, I feel this frustration and sulkiness and blah. I'm not okay. And you don't know what actually will help you. Right. So you just try whatever. And try meanness. And it doesn't work out great. Mm. He's in a bad moment in his life at this point in this chapter. Like he's just come off of meeting this awful queen getting poisoned by some Turkish delight. This is a decision that's very much happening under the influence of an enchantment. I would say. It is. Sure. Although, did you notice that Peter says, you know, we've seen you be mean to younger people before. We've seen this at school. Yeah. That was a very disappointing moment for me. I had Mm. forgotten that about Edmund, that this Mm. is actually part of his character, him being spiteful to younger kids. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard thing to know about my beloved Edmund. (laughs) To me, I don't as much feel like his decision is like, you know, he's got green glowing eyes and he's not really himself. But, like, it's one huge decision slash entrapment to be caught in a witch's web and doing all the things that go along with that. And it's a long time for him. Like, it's not just a one-moment decision. Right. It's this whole thing he's stuck in. And it's the things that, of course, he's capable of doing. It's not like she mm-hmm. talked him into doing things he would never do. Mm-hmm. He's being his worst self. Right, exactly. So here, when he's trying to find something to do, when Peter asks him the question and he's feeling awful, he does the meanest and most spiteful thing he could think of. And this is what it was. But somebody else, it might have been different. Do you remember a moment like that in your own life? Ugh, gosh. I mean, there's a lot of stuff, honestly, coming to mind. It's (laughs) kind of embarrassing. (laughs) Like, there's a family story how I'm the oldest of three sisters, and I probably felt like I wanted attention and I definitely felt like I was the one who got in trouble and not my younger sister. And so one day I I did my worst tempting powers like over and over. Oh, it'll be fine. It won't be bad. You should do it to convince my sister to draw with crayons on the wall. Oh no. So she would get in trouble. Oh no. You know what happened, Bethy? Uh, you got in trouble? I got in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> my plan didn't work out. <laughs> Yeah, the first thing that's coming to mind for me is in eighth grade, there was a boy who was a bit of a bully slash also class clown, which it's Mm. unfortunate that those things are often put together. But anyway, I had had enough of him. I was so Mm. frustrated. And one day in the hallway, I just turned to him and I have no idea where this came from. It wasn't true at all. But Mm. I just said, you stink. And I Uh watched him just be crushed before my eyes. Oh, uh And for weeks and weeks and weeks after that, the whole hallway smelled like Axe body spray. (gasps) Oh. I know. Yes. Yes. I just crushed him with one statement that wasn't even true. Yeah. Yeah. Words and it's matter. like in the moment, it in the moment you feel like this is powerful, this is vindication, this is me getting something important. And then after you're like, I did nothing. Yeah. Except bad things. Yeah. It's amazing how quickly a situation like that can go the way that Edmonds did. Yes. In that he suddenly made a decision and then he slowly realized, oh, this isn't working out. <laughs> right. And as it goes, it's interesting how it builds. Edmund sort of gives this superior look and says, oh, we're just playing. And Lucy rushes out of the room. And it says Edmund, 
who was becoming a nastier person every minute, thought that he had scored a great success. And he goes on until Peter shows that it's not a success. Mm -hmm. But becoming a nastier person every minute, you know? Yeah. This isn't him, but it's it's what he's doing and it's what he's becoming through all these choices. It's just like practicing anything else. If you practice, you get better at it. Yeah. My mom would always say, instead of practice makes perfect, she'd say practice makes permanent. Mm, that's good. Unfortunately, Edmund is eventually going to be able to shake things up and have a new practice, but it does I get worse I wouldn't say he's able while. to shake things up, <laughs> but there's a shakedown that Yeah, happens. yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> something that forces change, for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> so this chapter also has a wonderful line from Susan, and it made me repent of all the ways that I've been annoyed at her already in the book mm. and think, oh my goodness, I need to give her more credit. This is when Edmund has been awful to Lucy and then Peter's saying, how horrible, how could you be this way? Why are you doing this? I thought, I thought, you didn't think anything at all. And then, do stop it, said Susan. It won't make things any better having a row between you two. Let's go and find Lucy. Hmm. That was brilliant. Like, she knows that Peter's right. She sees all the things just like he does, but she's not going to get in the middle. She sees the interpersonal dynamics happening and she knows that the important thing right now is Lucy is off crying her eyes out. Yeah. She's the voice of reason. Yeah. And I think we're going to see that often she is. Mm-hmm. She is. Maybe sometimes it's annoying in a sister, but she is motherly. Mm-hmm. And trying to figure out, you know, how to be four kids living without any parents in their life right now. Right. Someone's got to be motherly. Mm-hmm. It's not like Mrs. McCready is filling that job. No. No, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that I noticed was the way that Diggory talks about school. Yes, the professor. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, two times he says, I wonder what they teach in school. They don't teach logic in school. Right. Did we learn that Diggory is a professor of philosophy? Do we know? Hmm. I don't think we do. I'm not sure. Oh, there are definitely going to be listeners (laughs) who are like, ah, how do they not know this? Sorry, (laughs) email us if you have an opinion. But it does seem like this is a great philosophy moment. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about this later on with my scripture reading that I chose. But he brings in the idea of liar, lunatic, lord when he talks about Lucy. Right. He says there are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies or she is mad or she is telling the truth. And then he crosses off to telling lies. She doesn't do that. And it's obvious that she's not mad. So we have to assume she's telling the truth. This is actually an argument that we hear Lewis make when it comes to Jesus. That Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. We see that he's not a lunatic because people very much follow him and believe him. And you wouldn't naturally do that with a lunatic. It becomes obvious after a while. He's not a liar because how else could he possibly be performing all of these miracles and know all that he knows? And therefore, just like Lucy, we have to rule out the other two and assume for now, unless proven otherwise, that what he's saying is truth. We'll dive into that a little more later on. But Katie, do you have a sacred reading practice for us today? I do. And we're going to be looking at the same section of the chapter. Oh, good. Today, we are doing a medieval practice of looking at the fourfold meaning. I love this one. So fun. We haven't done this one yet in this book, 
But medieval scholars of the Bible were used to reading not just for a literal meaning, but for multiple layers of meaning. So there's the literal meaning, what's happening. There's also the typological meaning. So, for example, if they're reading an Old Testament passage, they would say, what does this literally mean in its time? But also, how does it represent something that Jesus has done? Connection between Old Testament and Jesus, or New Testament and Jesus. And there's also the moral or tropological meaning. So right now, today, how should we act based on this verse? And there's the anagogical or spiritual meaning in the hugest, largest scale about heaven and hell and the last days and prophecies. What meaning does this line have? So it can have all of these at the same time. That's so cool. So how do we choose what sentence we're going to look at? So could I have you pick a number between one and four? Four. A number between one and six. Five. And five only has one sentence in it. Perfect. Okay, so here is our sentence that we'll be looking at for fourfold meaning. My dear young lady, said the professor, suddenly looking up with a very sharp expression at both of them, there is one plan which no one has yet suggested, and which is well worth trying. That's a really good moment. I'm glad we got mm. that one. So our first step is to look for the literal meaning. What is going on in this line? Okay. They've come to the professor for help. They've figured out that he thinks that Lucy could be telling the truth, and now they don't know what to do. And so he is going to give them the suggestion that they mind their own business. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's the one plan. No one's yet suggested, but it's well worth trying. <laughs> Love it. Interesting, his sharp expression. Yeah, very interesting. It's almost like he's disappointed that they hadn't thought of that themselves. Right. <laughs> They're doing all this logic to try and figure out what's going on. Is Lucy lying or is she mad? Maybe even telling the truth. And he's kind of like, hey, none of your business. Which is so funny because if there's an enchanted world through a wardrobe, of course we would think we need to figure it out. Also, I would think that Diggory is very interested in this mm -hmm. and probably wants to go check it out. Is probably thinking about going into the wardrobe himself. And maybe he does and maybe he doesn't. We don't know that story. <laughs> but it could be that he doesn't because mm -hmm. he wants to help these kids mind their own business. And so he's also going to do that. And it seems like he's aware that we're not really in charge of this magic. It's something that if Aslan wants to bring it about, it's going to happen. Mm. But we can't pretend we're in control over this situation, yeah. which is how it ends up working out. True. So our next layer of meaning is the typological. And that's connecting to Jesus or to stories from scripture or to larger themes in this book as well. So I immediately thought of Jesus in the temple overturning tables. Oh, wow. Because of the sharp look of the professor. When mm -hmm. I think of Diggory as an old man and a professor, I don't think of sharp looks. I think this is pretty rare. I don't know. I kind of feel like it's part of the, I feel like you might give sharp looks a lot. Right. And it's part of Jesus's character too. He often mm -hmm. tells people, like, why haven't you thought of this, <laughs> you know? Right, <laughs> like, right. what do you think you're doing? And it's yeah. surprising. You don't go into a moment with the professor expecting a sharp look or a mm -hmm. moment with Jesus expecting to be chastised, and yet that's what is so often received. I wonder if that's what the sharpness is about. You know, they're going in expecting some sort of adult kind of collaboration or maybe even approval for, oh, wow. This is tough. Your poor sister. You must really be having a hard time with this. Mm -hmm. And what they get instead is put in their place. 
Yeah. Not meanly, not unkindly. No, not at all. Really openly. It kind of reminds me of Proverbs, just like, hey, here's what's wisdom. Mind your own business here. Don't be a busybody. Very straightforward. Mm-hmm. And practical. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I think we want to ask, like, Susan, oh, what are we supposed to do? And sometimes that's right, but sometimes there's nothing for you to do. It requires humility to mm-hmm. look at a concerning situation and mind your own business. Which ends up being great advice because after that, things get a lot better for Lucy. Mm-hmm. So that actually moves us into the moral meaning or the tropological meaning. How then should we act? Could you read it one more time? My dear young lady, said the professor, suddenly looking up with a very sharp expression at both of them. There's one plan which no one has yet suggested, and which is well worth trying. To me, it feels like back to basics, back to moral basics. Like he's taking off his spectacles, polishing, and she says, oh, but what do we do? And he's this sudden clarity and intellect looking up at them like, well, of course, you know how to act. All the basic moral things you learned as a kid. I like that. You can picture that in other settings besides minding your own business. But something like, oh, there's this awful drama situation at work or this whatever happening. And it's like, well, it's obvious. Like, be nice to people. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Something like that, you know? Just simplifying. And actually, that's the whole point of his logic, too. It's not to build up some great philosophical structure that's complicated and tricky. The point of his philosophy that he's used is to make things simpler and obvious and clear. Right. And this is the same way. Yeah, he doesn't come up with six different ways that Lucy could be. Mm-hmm. Well, according to this school of thought, perhaps it's this, <laughs> but it's fascinating to consider that school under which, yeah. And that's not what they need. They need clarity. Yeah, and he's not going to lie to them by not saying what he thinks. So Dante gives an example of how to do this for all the different levels. And his verse he's looking at is, When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a barbarous people, Judea was made his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. And he goes through each of the levels. And for the anagogical, he says it's talking about the exodus of the holy soul from slavery of this corruption to the freedom of eternal glory. So I don't know if that's useful. Yeah, really clarifies. (laughs) Hmm. No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever, okay. You know, just lob that out there. Never mind. I guess a spiritual meaning that I can find is that Faith in Jesus does not have to be as complicated as we make it. That's actually exactly what I was thinking, too. Oh, good. So Paul says, I didn't come to you with all these fancy words or trying to be clever or impressive. I just came with the power of Christ. And sometimes I think that's it. Like, okay, there's all these thoughts and theologies and philosophies and things that have their place. But at the end of the day, it's obedience to Christ. Yes or no? Yeah. I remember... In one letter from Paul or another, he said, look out for philosophies and just people making things more complicated than they need to be Mm, and focus mm -hmm. on Jesus. Right. Yes. Obviously, that's not a direct quote. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And it's not that he's saying, hey, we shouldn't do any serious thinking about Jesus in philosophical, theological ways. But like, don't run after these fancy systems that seem all shiny. Yeah. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And it's Jesus crucified, too, like not shiny and fancy. Mm -hmm. Well, I also think of let your yes be yes and your no be no. Mm -hmm. Just say it how it is and move on. Right. Well, how about I read the sentence one more time and then we can, can move on. That'd be great. My dear young lady, said the professor, suddenly looking up with a very sharp expression at both of them. There is one plan which no one has yet suggested 
and which is well worth trying. Do you have some scripture for us today? I do. Today we're looking at John 6, 56 through 66. Lots of sixes in there. <laughs> Jesus says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So I thought of this passage because of the idea of liar, lunatic, and Lord. Mm. And how... The professor sat there with his fingertips pressed together, intently listening with an open mind, and how infrequently we do that for Jesus. <laughs> mm. <laughs> because he is saying in that passage some crazy stuff. As part of that same discussion, C.S. Lewis says, the only thing he can't be is a good moral teacher, because he's not claiming that. He's claiming to be Lord. Yeah, he's claiming to be the bread from heaven, that if you eat it, you'll live forever. Mm -hmm. There is... Nothing chill about that. It's either completely insane or a devious lie, or it's true. And honestly, the people are right. This is a hard teaching. It's not at all surprising to see that so many of them turn away at that point. But I wonder what the professor would say there, because it's not necessarily that they think he's lying or that they think he's mad. I think they just think it's too hard. Yeah, it's offensive. And so it's not that they've worked through it and come to way of dealing with his statements, they're just avoiding it, avoiding having to follow the truth when they hear it. I mean, I think that's how it is for me. It's, you know, if I'm disobedient, it's not because I've decided that I don't believe it or that it's crazy. It's that I don't want yeah. to. It just sounds hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Jesus talks about that's why the Father has to do the work of bringing people to Jesus. It's not something we can accept right. by ourselves. It's impossible alone. And Edmund is totally trying to do it alone. I mean, his one person who's helping him is the witch. And that's not a great situation to be in. Not a good helper. And I'd say this is how it works probably for Peter and Susan, too. The professor maybe opens their minds a little bit to a possibility they hadn't considered. But they have to be chased into Narnia before they're going to let it become real for them. 
I definitely hear an echo of Peter and Susan's voices in verse 60 when it says, On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? I wonder if that's another reason that the professor doesn't try and push them. I mean, he does say, yes, it's very probable that there are worlds all over the place. But he doesn't try and talk them into it. I think he knows you can't convince somebody, but that it has to be, I mean, in the scripture, it has to be the work of the Holy Spirit. In the book, it'll be some magic chasing them into Narnia. But he's not going to try and force what he knows he can't do. He is going to be a respected person who tells them to open their minds, though which I think is very important when it comes to experiencing faith for the first time. Again, you can't do it alone. It's too lonely and it's too hard and it's too much. But if there's someone in your life yeah. who you respect who's saying, yeah, come try this, come think about this, that's much easier. And then when you actually encounter, you know, the power of God or miracles or something, there's, you know who to go to. There's already some brain space available. <laughs> Not that that has to be there, but... Sure makes it easier. I think. I guess I'm just kind of making that up. I don't know. Based on actually looking at folks' journeys. (laughs) I mean, I've definitely experienced that. Where big faith moments are a lot easier when there's someone to go to. To say, hey, I feel like I'm being called to this. Or I feel like something's up. Mm -hmm. Can you confirm that Mm. with me? Or can you... Yes, yes. Can you tell me otherwise? Yeah, that's true. You kind of know what to look for as well. And someone else is kind of giving you a little bit of a map. That's the whole point of Christian community. That's part of the point. (laughs) That's true. It's one of the points. What about potlucks? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Matthew, how are you going to apply this stuff this week? Or something from the chapter? There's so much. There's a lot. There's so much that we haven't even talked about. Mm. How awesome it is that they get chased into Narnia. Oh my gosh, the best, the best, the best. Susan's epic line where she says, bother these trippers. That's my favorite (laughs) line. That is the best line in this chapter. It's so good. But one thing that I think I want to apply that we have not talked about yet is when Diggory turns to Susan and he says, and what do you think, my dear? Hmm. that to me is a very Aslan filled moment that's the Hmm. way that Aslan speaks and Diggory has had enough time with Aslan that he is influenced by him he speaks like Aslan and I want to be aware of who I speak like what about for you? I think I want to apply a lesson from Edmund at the beginning when he gets himself in in a fix by reacting with some spite and nastiness And just do some of those, like, kid habits of take a deep breath first or count to five. Like, when I know something's about to come out that's Mm going to be like that, hold off and, like, pray and let it go. Yeah. That came up this week, and it just, one little bit slipped out, and it was, sure enough, unhelpful. And then after that, I, like, didn't say the things I wanted to, and it made the morning Mm -hmm. a lot better. Good job. Thanks. It was under the influence of a conversation with my sister who had been kind of encouraging me and praying that morning. So that was the only reason. (laughs) (laughs) Praise God. Once again, good to not go at it alone. Yes. (laughs) It's a good one. Katie, will you read to us? Yes. At last, Susan said, Oh, bother these trippers. Here, let's get into the wardrobe room till they've passed. No one will follow us in there. But the moment they were inside, they heard voices in the passage, and then someone fumbling at the door, and then they saw the handle turning. Quick, said Peter, there's nowhere else. 
and flung open the wardrobe. All four of them bundled inside it and sat there, panting, in the dark. Peter held the door closed, but did not shut it. For, of course, he remembered, as every sensible person does, that you should never, never shut yourself up in a wardrobe. <laughs> and this was only the beginning of the adventures of Narnia. See you next week with Chapter 6 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But it's funny, I bet when it was written, he wasn't Diggory yet. Do you think he had that name Oh yet? yeah, definitely not. No, mm -hmm. I don't think so. Also, I think that the conversation in this chapter is kind of, is it called Schrodinger's cat? Where you don't know what's in the box? Yes. No, but I've never understood it. It's like both okay, alive and so, dead. Yes, because, because it could be both and therefore you have to assume it's both. When Lewis wrote this, he didn't yet know that this was Diggory. Mm. And so in this moment, uh, he's both Diggory who has been to Narnia and not. Yes. Yes. Okay. You're right. I like that a lot. <laughs> Ooh, fun, fun.